in our in this portion of the book of Acts, we are seeing the church push further out from Jerusalem and further into new areas, both in regards to new places and different people. We see that the gospel has gone from Jerusalem, where it was very successful, and tens of thousands of people got saved and gave their lives to Christ. And once persecution began, it moved to the cities in the region of Judea, which are the cities around Jerusalem. And then Philip went to Samaria, taking the gospels to a non-Jewish people group, first of all. And then we saw last week the beginning of the, the main enemy of the church, Saul of Tarshish, beginning to be saved hit by God with a bright light, knocked down on the Damascus Road, and he's made his way to Damascus, which we will pick up next week. Now we're going to see that God reaches out to someone who is Jewish, but they are an Ethiopian. So this is the Ethiopian eunuch who gives his life to Christ. This is, this is the account. Now, I have two titles for this. Number one, an outsider receives the gospel. And I'll, I'll tell you why in just a moment. This Ethiopian eunuch was an outsider in the Jewish community. He was Jewish, but he was still an outsider. I'll share with you why in a moment. The other title that I have is the Ethiopian eunuch explained. Now, let's first of all consider the Jewish community that is in Ethiopia. There is a significant Jewish community there that dates back to before the time of Christ. It is somewhat controversial as to how old that community is. There are some 500 different um, villages that have Jewish communities in them. As I said, we know they date back to before the time of Christ. Some believe they date back as far as King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. There's no real evidence for this. That's the main claim of the Jewish uh, of Ethiopian communities, that it goes back to that time. We do know there is evidence that goes as far back as the captivity. So that's the Babylonian captivity, 600 years before the time of Christ. So we know that somewhere, probably during the dispersion, when Syria was captured by Assyria, when Israel was captured by Assyria, or when Judah was captured by Babylon, there was a dispersion and people, Jewish people, made their way into Ethiopia, which is just south of that, right? You're going down from Israel. Egypt is Africa. So you go down from Israel through Egypt and then into Ethiopia. So it's not that far of a way. And they made and established this, this Jewish community. Uh, a recent study, this is 2020, so it's not that long ago, um, a group of people wanted to check and see how much of the DNA of the Jewish Ethiopians was actually Jewish, actually came from the Middle East. So this is the study, according to a 2020 study, by Ergonaut Tamar, and then it says Atal, E-T-A-L, and that means and more. So there were more than one, one group that were involved in this study. It says, and this was the conclusion, the DNA of the Ethiopian Jews is mostly East African origin, but 20% of their genetic makeup is Middle Eastern Semitic people, people origin, and shows similarity to modern Jewish and Arab populations, and Bronze Age Canaanites. So yes, there was some kind of a migration from the Middle East down into Ethiopia, and they are Jews and they follow Judaism. In the 80s, when I was a youth pastor for Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, I was just reading through the Old Testament that talked about God calling his people out of Ethiopia into Israel in the last days. It says that God's going to call his people from the north, the south, and the east, and the west. He's going to bring them back into Israel. We've seen that happen since the early 1900s. So there's some 6.5 million Jews in Israel today. So I'm watching the news one night 
And it shows a group of Ethiopians flying in from Ethiopia who are being accepted as residents for Israel because of their Jewish background. And I had just read that God was going to call them out of Ethiopia. And I'm like, I'm watching it happen right before my eyes. People are actually coming from Ethiopia. So it doesn't surprise us that this Ethiopian Jew makes his way to Israel to worship. We would expect it. They're Jewish. They're going to make their pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem now and again, and he makes his way there. What is surprising is that he is a eunuch. And in the law, a eunuch had a separation. They could not enter all the way into Jewish worship because in the law, there's this concept of purity or wholeness. So you could not have materials that were mixed. You couldn't mix two different kinds of cloth. So polyester would have been outlawed in the days of the Old Testament. And if you're one that wants to live the Old Testament, you better throw out anything in your closet that's mixed. You got to just wear 100% whatever it is. This was a way of God really speaking to them that they were to live wholeheartedly for God, that there was to be no mixture of the world and the things of God. So there was this concept of holiness and purity. And because an Ethiopian eunuch had had something obviously happen to him that would not make him whole, here's what it says in Deuteronomy. And I want to say, first of all, this is rough, all right? So get ready for it. So this is Jude Deuteronomy 23.1. It says, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. This means that where a normal Ethiopian Jew could enter into the court of the men because he's Jewish and he's a man, he can enter the court of the men. He doesn't have to go to the court of the Gentiles. He can go further into the court of the men, but he couldn't even enter the assembly, which meant that when he went to worship, he had to be on the outskirts. He couldn't go into where they normally went. And yet this Ethiopian unit goes to Jerusalem to be able to worship because he wants to get as close to God and do what he can, even though there's something about him that separates him from God, according to the law. Now, the law is all about separation. Only the uh, high priest can go into the holy place and only the priest can go into the holies of holies. And only the priest and those giving sacrifices can go where the altar is. And then there's the court of the men and no women can go in there. And then there's a the court of the women and men and women can go in there. There's the court of the Gentiles. And you got, if you're not a Gentile, that's as close as you can get. So it's all about separation. This Ethiopian eunuch is the one separated the greatest, the furthest away under the law. And we'll come back to that here in just a few moments. Now, let's consider, let's start looking at our text, Acts 8. We'll start with verse 26. It says, and this continues on with Philip, who has been in Samaria preaching to the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. I love that right out of the bat, this is an angel that speaks to Philip. God's going to direct him and guide him by an angel. The Bible tells us that we have been entrusted with the gospel to preach to all nations. We are his church built by Christ, given the gospel. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. But the Bible also says in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those that have salvation. So if you have salvation, you have angels that are ministering to you. And I think more than we think and more than we know. Now, we don't know how, to, how this angel spoke to him. Was it audible? Was it, did he see it in a vision? Did the angel have wings? Did he have a halo? I, I don't know any of those things. I, do, I know some of those things, but I don't know, you know how, how the angel spoke to him. But somehow, 
Philip heard from the angel to go, it says, saying, arise and go towards the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert. And he rose and he went and behold, a, ma a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of her treasury. Now, right away, when we read that, we go, well, this is different than the Sunday school story that I heard. In Sunday school, you usually have, when I was a kid, we had the felt thing that was up and they stuck a chariot on there and they stuck an Ethiopian eunuch on there and they stuck Philip on there and they stuck a pool down there and they stuck some palm trees on it and they went through the story of how the Ethiopian eunuch got saved. But he's always by himself. You can be sure that someone who is of great authority, we just read that, he was of great authority under Candace the queen and was in charge of her treasury that this was no small group of people that traveled up from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. He is not alone. We know he's not alone because he's reading Isaiah out loud. So he's not in his chariot reading Isaiah out loud. Someone's at least driving him. So we know someone else has to be with him. And, and he's going to have guards. This is a man of great authority. He's in charge of the treasury. He's high up in the government of Ethiopia. So the, he's going to be traveling with an entourage, with a group of people. And so it says, it goes on to say, and he came to Jerusalem to worship. Now we know already he couldn't go into the assembly of the Lord because of what Deuteronomy said. And he was returning. So he'd gone there and was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now this is a providence moment. I love when God works this way. God sends down Philip because the Ethiopian eunuch is reading about Jesus from the book of Isaiah and it's a providential moment. And every once in a while we have those moments. Over the, the 45 years that I've been a Christian, I've had moments where God providentially moves me into the life of someone. I'm able to lead them to the Lord. It's an amazing moment. They're very rare for me. Other people have more of those experiences. I have a, a friend of mine, he used to be on staff here, and um, he's got the gift of evangelism. And it seems like God gives him those moments all the time. We were traveling to Ireland. This is years and years ago. Both of our daughters were, were teenagers and we were looking at doing ministry in Ireland. In fact, Jim Barnes, one of our pastors, or Jim um, Arnold, Jim Barnes as well, but Jim Arnold was from Ireland. He was there in Cork, Ireland with Calvary Chapel, Cork, Ireland. And we were going to check out what they were doing there and wanting to be a part of what they were doing. And um, as we're going, Pete gets several, Pete and his daughter, me and Jessica, and Pete gets several opportunities to share the gospel. I don't. I don't know what's going on. He's witnessing the people on the plane. I'm hearing them. I'm in the back of the plane. I'm hearing them read, read the Bible to people on the plane. We're going through a cafeteria style place. I get my food from the ladies as they hand it. And I go over to check out and I look back and Pete is still at the mashed potato lady and she's crying as he's talking to her about Jesus. And I'm like, in the time I get my food, how is someone crying? Because he just seemed to have that gift. God uses people in that way. I really believe that he has the gift of evangelism and God uses him in that way to touch people's hearts and lives. And this is a providential moment. And so he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And so the Spirit of God said to Philip, now Philip has been spoken to by an angel. Now the Spirit of God speaks to him. I don't know how this happened. I don't know if it was a, just an inclination. Like, I really think I need to go up and, and, and run alongside of this and, and talk to this Ethiopian eunuch. If he heard something in his head, go up and speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. I don't know how it happened, but the fact that something happened afterwards reveals that God was moving. 
Now, I spent a lot of time in Pentecostal churches when I was a teenager. And I can tell you that we did a lot of things like, you know, I feel like, I feel like I'm supposed to change lanes now. And, and so change lanes. And I would be with people who would do this. God's telling me to change lanes. So they would change lanes. And then nothing would happen. And you'd go, I'm not sure God told you to change lanes. Maybe that's a burrito you had earlier told you to change lanes. But I don't know that God did. Now imagine if somebody told me, I think God's telling me to change lanes. So he changes lanes and the car flies out and flies in front of us. And we go, whoa, had we been in that lane, we would have gone, God spoke to you. That's what we would have said. So from the 2020 hindsight position, you can look back and see clearly that God has spoken to you in certain areas. You might not be able to see it clearly when he speaks to you, but you may see it clearly later on. That happens here. So after church on Wednesday night, me and my wife were, had stopped by five guys. And I was eating my burger. And she was eating um, her hot dog. And as we were sitting there, the, um, a guy came in. And he just had weird body language. He was frustrated. That's the best way I can read the body language. He was also covered in sweat. So he probably was running. It wasn't raining outside. So he'd probably been running. And he's massively frustrated. He's frustrated when he gives his order. He, he walks by us and he's like, just look, roll eyes up at the, and he's just, so I'm reading this body language and I'm going, I don't like this already. And then he comes and sits directly behind me. <laughs> now I've sat back pretty far where I could kind of see the room, which is kind of just my habit of just seeing what's going on. And he sits directly behind me. And so I decide pretty quickly, let's get out of here. So I said to Kathy, why don't you do I wrap that up to go? I'd already eaten my hamburger because I'm like a dog. I'm like, <laughs> I eat the whole thing. So I'm waiting for her to get done. And I say, why don't you go ahead and take that and eat it in the car? Now, this is different than what I normally do. So she was like, okay, sure. And she just immediately did it. And we got up and we walked out. I felt weird about it. Now, was that God? Was that me being paranoid? I don't know. Was it wise? Maybe it was just wisdom. I'm looking at a guy that's not quite right. Had he sat in front of me, I probably wouldn't have had a problem. But the fact I had this weird, this guy going through whatever he's going through, I don't know if he was weird or not, but he came and he sat behind me, made me go, I gotta do something. Now, if we got home and we turned on the news and the news said that there was a major event and a guy got arrested at Five Guys, I would've went, God told me. <laughs> right now, right now it just looks like I was paranoid. But had <laughs> something happened, so we don't always know when it's the Spirit of God. We wanna be careful we don't live our lives thinking, God told me not to drive that way. God, we, we want to trust in God more than that. I think that these kind of directions from God are going to be rare. I don't think that God's going to be directing you personally. Okay, I'm a skeptical person, all right? And if you're a parking lot person, then, then that's great. If you're a parking space person, God told me to drive up to the front. There's going to be a parking space for me. And praise God, there was. And I'm always just kind of like, and here's the crazy part. My late wife, Lisa, she was that way. She was like, God shows me his love by giving me parking spaces all the time. And I'm like, I'm going to go park and walk up because I, I don't know that that's really happening or whether God's like, yes, you need a parking place that's close for you to understand my love. I'm not sure about all that. But it does happen, but I think in more significant times. So Philip hears from the Holy Spirit, go near, overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him heard him re reading the prophet Isaiah. Again, this is a providential moment. He's reading Isaiah where Isaiah is talking about Jesus and he's going to share Jesus with him. He's living his life to share for Christ as all of us in the church are. And now he, he's reading out of Isaiah. And so Philip runs up to the chariot and says to him, do you understand what you're reading? Now, I love the way Philip does this. Philip could have ran up to the chariot 
and said, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, God told me to come and tell you that Jesus of Nazareth, attested to by miracles, fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament and is the Son of God. And I would like to show that to you and allow you an opportunity to give your life to Christ. But he didn't do it that way. Instead, he ran up and he saw him reading. He said, and he was reading it out loud. Do you understand what you're reading? He takes a genuine interest by asking him a question. The Bible says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I believe evangelism, the most powerful kind, doesn't come from me just having something I want to give you. It comes from me taking a real interest in you, asking you questions, listening to you, becoming a real friend. If somebody comes to me and gives me a criticism and I don't know them from Adam, it doesn't, I, I, I don't take it at all. I don't receive it at all because I don't know them. But if somebody who's been a friend, who has listened to me, who's prayed with me, who's cried with me, who really loves me and I know they love me, comes and give me, gives me a criticism, I accept that. I listen to it a lot closer. I don't dismiss it closely. So we want to be able to have the right to speak into people's lives. Now, years ago, there was a book called Friendship Evangelism, and they talked about this, that you, you want to be a listener. And a lot, in our day, it's even worse today than it was uh, 35 years ago when that was written. We don't listen. People are talking to us, and we're ready to give what we want to say. People are, are like, I went to, uh, you know, I, I, I went to uh, Cancun last week. Well, I went to the moon one time. You know, we, we've always got that one up that we want to tell them. Uh, our world is very me-centric, as soon as you start telling me something, I want to respond back with something that I have a similar experience and tell you about it. Sometimes it has that one upmanship about it. We kind of, instead of just listening to someone and being slow to speak and maybe asking them more questions. What, what are you reading? I'm reading the book of Isaiah. Has it been speaking to you? You know, you can start to ask more questions. Now, I have opportunities to be able to talk with men who don't know the Lord regularly in, uh, during the week. And I, I play golf and I don't usually talk about that because I've been at churches where the pastor plays golf and there's a golf analogy every week and I don't want to be that pastor, all right? But it does afford me the opportunity to play with men who don't know Christ. And so I'm able to genuinely talk to them. And I'll ask, I'll talk, I'll find out, you know, a lot of them are retired. Where'd you work at? What did what, you do for, for a living? How are you liking retirement? Um, are you married? I'm just asking them questions about their life. I'm taking a genuine concern. This is not manipulation on my part. Yes, I want to share the gospel with every one of them. I do. But I'm not asking them these questions in order to share the gospel. I'm becoming their friend. And it's a real, true friendship. It's not a friendship just to share the gospel later on. I have been called to share the gospel, but I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to be their friends. And if I never share the gospel or if they reject the gospel, I'm still their friend. I haven't stopped it. The book on friendship evangelism went through all of this saying, listen to people, be friends, take an interest in them, really pour into their lives, really let them know you're listening to them. But then it said, if they don't follow through, then you, you've got to move on to other friends. So go ahead and stop that friendship. That's manipulation. That's problematic, right? Do you want people becoming your friends just to get something from you? Or do you want people becoming your friends so that you become a Mormon? And when you don't become a Mormon, then they're like, well, I'm not your friend anymore because you didn't become a Mormon. That's just wrong. That aspect of that book, Friendship Evangelism, was wrong. 
You become a friend to someone because you become a friend, whether they know the Lord or not, and you pray for them and you talk with them. And yes, your greatest hope is that they would come to Christ. But it begins with you taking a true, genuine interest in them. They're not going to want to listen to what you have to say about the gospel, about prophecy, about Jesus, unless you show them that you really care about them. And it's got to be a genuine love and a genuine care that you really love, you care about them. Now, it happens very quickly here, but the guy obviously sees Philip as someone that cares about him. They asked him the question, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I know unless someone guides me? Again, providential moment. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place where he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. That's about Jesus, by the way. As a lamb before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. This is Jesus being scourged and beaten and didn't open his mouth during that time. He was humiliated. His justice was taken away from him. It was all false accusations and illegal trials. He had done nothing wrong and they crucified him for it. His justice was taken away from him. Who will declare to his generations for his life was taken from him? He actually died. And the passage goes on to say that he would see the fruit of the labor of his fruit. It's a resurrection passage. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, this is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what we're reading here. He took our place and our iniquity was placed on him and he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That's in this passage as well. That he was killed and yet saw the labor of his fruit. And it says, and who will declare to his generation for his life was taken from him. So the eunuch answered and said, I ask you, what does the prophet, why does who, um, whom does the prophet say this of himself or of some other man? So the Ethiopian eunuch is like, I'm confused. I'm reading the Bible. I don't understand it. Have you ever been there? Reading the passage of the Bible. I don't know. He's talking about himself. He's talking about somebody else. I don't know what's going on here. So that's the Ethiopian eunuch. But it's not Isaiah talking about Isaiah. He's talking about Jesus who would take away the sins of the world. This is one of the most amazing prophecies in the pages of scripture. When I first became a Christian, I read a number that was pretty staggering that Jesus had fulfilled 350 Old Testament prophecies. Now I'm a pretty skeptical person. When someone comes to me and tells me, last night I was in my room and I saw an angel. Now, if you've ever come and told me this, I'm sorry about this, all right, I'm apologizing already. But if somebody comes to me and says, last night an angel appeared to me, in my mind I say, no, he didn't. Because I'm just skeptical. I just generally don't believe. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I don't believe the earth is flat. I'm slow to go on, go on to any, that there really is conspiracy theories behind. I got to see things to be able to see it. So when I learned there were 350 prophecies Jesus fulfilled, I got a list of them. And I began to go through them. And I found that a lot of them are not quite that. That maybe they are, but they're not really clear cut. And I would never use a lot of those prophecies to try to share with someone that Jesus was the Messiah by fulfilling these prophecies. But I found that somewhere between 60 and 70 were really strong. That's a, that's a big number. Really strong 60 or 70 Old Testament passages that Jesus fulfilled as the Messiah. The future was told. No other book does that. There's no other, if people ask me, if everybody ever, I'll ask people on the golf course sometimes, where I ask them about all kinds of questions, but then I'll say something like, I want to talk about spiritual things with them. So I'll say something like, what do you think happens after you die? Or what religion were you brought up? I get Catholic, Mormon, I get all kinds of things. 
but what religion were you brought up? And if anybody ever says to me, which I'm trying to think if they have on the golf course or not, I don't think they have, why do you believe so much that Christianity is the right way? I would go, oh, let me, let me tell you. There are some prophecies in this book. God tells the future. It's like his signature in the Bible. And he foretold what was going to happen to Jesus and some other prophecies. No other, the Quran doesn't do that. No Far Eastern books do that. There's no other book like this one that tells the future. And because of that, I believe that God is real. And then he foretold the resurrection of Christ. He foretold the birth of Christ. He foretold that Jesus was going to die an unjust death for our sins. Now in Isaiah, where he's reading, this is called the suffering servant. And I want to read you a little bit of it before where he read there in his section. This is what it says. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was led as it were, and we hid as it were our face from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he bore our griefs and our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. That's sin. The chastisement of our peace is upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the, oh, it's the gospel in the Old Testament. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There's the atoning salvation of the cross in the Old Testament. Now it even gets more direct as you continue to read it, that it becomes clear that it's Jesus. This is not read regularly. Yearly they read things in synagogues, kind of like liturgy in churches. Like if you're in the Lutheran church, all Lutherans everywhere are going to read the same thing, okay? So the same thing is way, that way with it. They don't read Isaiah 53. Now in the days of Jesus, this was called a messianic prophecy. We know that because we have the, the commentaries of the rabbis who said this was messianic, that this was Jesus. That was the Messiah who was going to suffer. Today, they don't say that. So when you go to them and say, hey, look, I got a passage for you to read. They're going to take, go to their rabbi and their rabbi is going to go, that's Israel. That's not Jesus. Israel's the one who suffered and despised and rejected. Now on the face, you hear that and you go, well, Israel suffered a lot throughout the years. There, there's, there's really somewhere around 15 million Jewish people, maybe a little larger than that number now, but around the world, that's a pretty low number. It's a very low number because of all of the things that they've gone through. However, when you begin to read this passage, it doesn't fit that this is, is Israel. And I just want to do this for a moment. So where it says he, the, the obvious suffering servant, I'm going to put in Israel. Okay? So Israel was despised and rejected by men. Israel, of, uh, was, was, uh, uh, Israel was of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Israel. Israel was oppressed. And Israel, and we did not esteem Israel. Surely Israel bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Well, that's where it begins to get weird. All the other stuff is kind of like, okay, but now how did Israel carry our griefs and sorrows? Yet we esteemed Israel stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But Israel was wounded for our transgression and was bruised for our iniquities. How was Israel now our atonement? Where is that ever a thing? And so it becomes logically impossible and in fact, Isaiah is talking about his sin, which is the Jewish sin. He says, for our people, he died. So for Israel, that's the people of Isaiah, for Israel, Israel died. Well, I die for my own sin too. So it doesn't make sense. But finally, we get to one place here, and this is in verse nine. And it says, 
they made his grave with the wicked, but the, with the rich in his death, and he had done no violence. So we're still reading Israel in here. Israel had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in Israel's mouth. Now, does that fit? Have you read the Old Testament? Israel did violence and Israel was deceitful. And so have we. And there's no nation on the earth that didn't. So I'm not picking on Israel above any other nation. Everyone has done violence. We personally have done violence. We personally have done deceit. Jesus didn't. It had to be someone who was perfect in order to be a substitutionary atonement. Suffering wasn't enough. So the Bible says he was tempted in every way. We are yet without sin. So this passage has to be talking about Jesus. And it's just one. Psalms 22, Isaiah 61. I could just start rattling off passages in the Old Testament that clearly talk about Jesus being the Messiah and fulfilling them. We can prove it from the Old Testament. Now in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the scriptures and preached Jesus to him. Now he didn't have the New Testament. So he went through the Old Testament, preaching Jesus to him. And it says, now as they went down the road, they came to water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So obviously Philip had said to him, receive Christ, believe in him and be baptized because of the remission of sins. We are baptized because God takes away our sins. It is a public statement, but we go under the water as a sign of dying to ourselves and we come out of the water as a sign of living in the newness of Christ, empowered by the same spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave, Paul says, is the same spirit that works inside of us. That's why we're baptized. And so he says, what hinders me from being baptized? Now, baptism is not salvation. And I don't have time to go into that right now, but I will at some other time. Out of the 18th centuries came what we call the American cults, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of Christ, the Jehovah Witnesses, the, the Mormons, and these are all work-based religions. They believe Seventh-day Adventists, you got to go to church on Saturday to be saved. you got to be baptized, Church of Christ, in order to be saved. Uh, you got to speak in tongues in order to be saved. All of these came out of that kind of work-based religion. It says we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So baptism does not save you. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And if the gospel were baptism, he would never have divided them. You are saved, you believe, and then you're baptized. So he says, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip, verse 37, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Notice that he had to believe with all his heart before he could be baptized. This takes away very young children and infant baptism. Because if you say, well, you've got to be baptized. And, and what, did, what did Philip say? If you believe in Jesus with all of your heart, you may. So the one condition you have to be baptized is that you believe with, in Jesus with all of your heart. If you can't do that. Now, I was baptized as an infant into the Methodist church. It didn't hurt me. Some of you guys were baptized as an infant into Lutheran church or Presbyterian church or Catholic church and it didn't hurt you, but it didn't do what baptism was meant to do. You need to be baptized once you believe. You believe. You make your stand. And now think of it. You're making a public statement. We're going to have dozens of people later on this afternoon that are going to be making a public statement as they go under the water and come out of that water that I'm living for Jesus. Raising your hand and praying a prayer is a good thing. It's not a public statement though. If I, I called you guys up front, maybe then it would be. But that's not a public statement. You've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. That's a public statement. 
when you're making a public statement to people. Let people know that you're a Christian. Now, you don't have to do that in baptism. Baptism is one form of that. But you do go under the water as a symbol of your death and come out of the water as a symbol of living for Him. And God wants that in your life. And, and then He answered, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a deity statement. That's a Messiah statement. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and baptized him. Now when he had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Astros and passing through, he preached to the cities that came to Caesarea. Now oftentimes when pastors get to this point, they go, I don't believe this was any special event. I think the Ethiopian eunuch came out of the water and Philip was gone. Philip had snuck away, you know, behind some reeds or something and then walked away and that this isn't a supernatural event. The Ethiopian eunuch just didn't see him anymore. It's not saying God projected him from one place to another. A little bit later on in the book of Acts, we're going to read that God did unusual miracles at that time. God attested to the beginning of the church with unusual miracles. I don't see any reason this, I, I, don't, I can't read this as being him sneaking through the reeds away from the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm going to do that with you when I baptize you. I'm going to under the water. I'm going to disappear. <laughs> Hold my breath, go under the water, swim off to the side, you know. No, this is, this is God doing an unusual miracle. He's not doing it all the time. It would help me a lot to get to the next campus to teach this morning if God would project me from here to there. So hopefully God, maybe God would do an unusual miracle, but that's not what he's doing. Now, three things in closing. Number one, the man who had been a, at a distance under the law had now been brought as close to Christ as any Christian. There was no restriction. There is no restriction on anyone. The Bible says in Hebrews, we can all go boldly to the throne to find help in a time of need. You can't say, I wish I could really get close to God, but I'm not a pastor. Pastors have the same access to God as everyone else does. There's no separation or tiers of more spiritual people that have greater access to God in the church. We're all the same. We are a royal priesthood, the Bible says. We are royal. We are kings in the kingdom of God. Kings in, in royalty in the kingdom of God. We are priests. What did a priest do? Go to God for people. So we take the people, I take the people I golf with before God in prayer. I'm like a priest, I'm going to God. But once they get saved, they become a priest and they're able to go to God. So I, I don't understand people who still want to be under the law. We got to keep the law. I'm like, you want all that separation? When you can have instant access through Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man? Number two, take a real interest in people's lives. Sincerely ask them questions. If you have trouble listening, then, then start to, to repeat back to them what they say. Start saying things like, well, that's interesting. You believe that good people go to heaven. And so then what would make good people? Oh, that's interesting. You believe that people shouldn't be judged. Do you believe that about people on the earth today? Do you believe that if a man rapes and murders a woman that he should be judged? You think that's, that it's not right for them to judge, but that God can't judge people? So you could start to ask questions and repeat things back to them. You could start, and, and now you're listening to what they're saying. You're not just listening to yourself talk. That's building listening skills. And look, there's some stuff out there that doesn't necessarily need to be Christian. But if you want to know how to build your listening skills, then look that up. Just look up, be a better listener. Learn how to be a better listener. And there's some very practical things that helps us. Uh, we generally don't like to be around me-centric people. 
When they're always talking about themselves, I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that, I did this, I did this, I did that, this, this, and that, that. We're like, bye-bye, see you later. We just don't want to be around that because we want to have interaction with people. Let's not be those people. Number three, prophecy is powerful. The prophecy that we know points to Jesus. And I'm not saying that those 350 prophecies don't speak of Christ because there's an, well, I can see why they're saying it. They're, I'm just not going to use them to try to persuade someone because I very easily could say, I don't think that completely connects. But there are some very strong ones that do connect. Learn those prophecies. You might be a person that's not like me. I'm a pretty skeptical person. I've got, and this, this may be a great skill for a pastor to have, or this may be a great um, attribute of a pastor to be more skeptical. Because if I'm more skeptical, if I'm going to present something to you, then I've got to go find the evidences that persuade me and I'm giving the evidences that persuade me as a skeptical person to you. That could be a great skill to have or, or attribute to have as a pastor. Now, you may just believe. You may not need any of that. You're like, I'm not skeptical. I believe Jesus rose from the dead and I believe that the very moment I heard it, I invited Christ into my life and I live that way. I don't need all that. Nanny nana. <laughs> but here's the thing. Sooner or later, you're going to talk to a skeptical person. And the I just believe isn't enough. You have to know how to defend your faith. You have to know what they are. There's plenty of things out there to help you do that. There's plenty of, of books written by apologists, On Guard by William Lane Craig, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek, Another Gospel by Elisa Childers, um, Lee Strobel, A Case for Faith, A Case for Christ. These help us get the evidences for Christianity and own them so we can give them back. You might not need it, which is praise God. There's a gift of faith as well. Praise God you've got that. But sooner or later, you're going to talk to someone who's skeptical and they throw a lot of ad hoc arguments. And once you've got the information, it becomes very powerful. I'm very late. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is rich. It is deep. It is meaningful. It is powerful and changes us. Thank you that we can see the evangelism of Philip and the faith of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we learn something about baptism here. And we pray that we would care about the people around us. First of all, our family. Lord, that we would really listen to what they're saying. Talk about things that are more than just surface and learn how to be slow to speak, quick to listen and slow to wrath. And Lord, that we would be able to share faith as a light that shines to people who are perishing. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.